0: I'm going to read from Luke 15. And this is going to be part two of a sermon you hopefully, some of you heard it in May, where we dealt with the first lost son, the prodigal son. We're going to read the same story, but this morning we're going to look at the elder son. So I left you hanging last time. Last time we talked about Jesus, well, He was with tax collectors and sinners. I'll just give you a bit of background. And they were gathering around to hear him. This is verse 1 of of Luke 15, by the way. And they muttered, they complained, all of these Pharisees, tax collectors, these teachers of the law, excuse me, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, these leaders, quite righteous, very good people. They said, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus responded with a parable. And the word is singular, parable, but he gives three stories. So we're meant to read them together. And he tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, loses one of them, and so he searches out in the wilderness for the one that's lost, leaving the 99 back. And when he finds the lost one, he picks it up on his shoulders, walking back, and then he calls his buddies together to celebrate because he he found his lost sheep. And then he tells a story from the life of women in the home, a woman who lost one of her valuable silver coins, one out of ten. And so she lights a lamp, sweeps the floor, searches the whole house, and finally finds it. And it's so important to her, she calls her neighbors together and says, come and celebrate with me because I've found my lost coin. And then finally, he tells the third story of this, this parable, his answer. And let's read that. We'll read the whole story, but like I said, we're going to be focusing on the last bit. So, Luke 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 11, we'll start to read. I'll read it out of the the NIV this morning, the New International Version. Jesus continued There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. That younger son broke his father's heart, didn't he? He asked his dad, Give me my share of what's coming to me when you die. And he took it, and you know, wealth in the Middle East. It's not in bank accounts or stock certificates, which are now digital anyway. It's in lands and houses. It's in herds. It's in vineyards and orchards. Wealth is kept in in servants and buildings, things that take generations to build up. And to mean that he he gathered it after not many days, right, and traveled to a far country, the shame of selling it off. That's what that means. This is what we talked about last time. I'm giving you the review. He sold it off at any price to get out of town. It would have been a shame to his whole family, to his whole village. I'm not even sure if he could have found a local buyer because of the shame of it, selling off his ancestral properties and lands, the youngest son of the house doing that. How could that be? And then he left, spent it all quickly. A famine comes, right? And he suddenly has nothing. He fails. He he, he fails as a beggar. No one will give him anything. And he he wants to eat the pig's food that he's having to feed pigs. And as a Jewish man in this story, I think, it would have been the the lowest of low to have to feed pigs. So he thinks, I know, his stomach, he's about to starve. He says, I'll go back to to dad because his servants have bread and enough to spare and and I can get food. So he decides on this plan to improve his situation, a self-improvement plan. I'm going to go back, I'm going to apologize, and I'm going to tell him I don't deserve to be his son anymore, but please, give me a job. So he walks back rehearsing this speech, and then he gets the surprise of his life because his father sees him from a distance and runs to him and grabs hold of him, hugs him, kisses him in front of the whole village, in front of everyone, enters into his son's shame. And I told you last time, I asked the Middle Eastern a uh, villager once, what would you think if you saw this scene? And he, would, he told me, if I saw this, I would think, like son, like father. If he accepts his son, they're both just dead to me. This family, what is wrong with them? That he would identify now with that son who did that shameful thing. But the father does identify into the shame of his son. That's the cross in the story, isn't it? He enters into the shame and the filth. And hugs and kisses and receives his son. And Jesus is basically telling those Pharisees, look boys, it's worse than you think. I don't just welcome and eat with sinners and tax collectors. I run down the road to them and I hug them and kiss them and I clothe them and drag them in and celebrate over them. That's the idea. And he dropped the self-improvement plan. Did you catch that? He didn't say to his father, make me like one of your hired servants. He didn't say it when it came to it. He dropped that because he saw he was received as a son. Wouldn't it make sense to be a servant then? Only the father could fix the problem of the break in their relationship, and he did by going after his son and saving him. And then we're left with the elder son. And the word elder son, elder that Jesus used in the original language is there to give you that perfect hint, more than a hint, who he's talking about, because he's talking to a group of elders, Pharisees and teachers of the law, commonly known as the elders among us. And now he gets to the elder son in the story. Who do you think he's speaking most powerfully to right now in that part? He's speaking to those elders. And let's get into the story. It's a Middle Eastern story, isn't it? We already told you that. The elder son comes in from the field and he hears some noises, right? He hears the sound of music and dancing. There's a party going on. And he gets closer and he sees one of the young men outside of the house, and the whole village would have been invited a leading family and patriarch of the village having a party, everybody would have been there. And he approaches, and one of the servants, one of the young guys, is outside, and he asks him, you know, what's going on? And then we get the sort of the narrator role, the, 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 the bottom line in this guy's mouth in the story. He tells the older brother, what does he say? Verse oh, 26 called one of the servants asked him what's going on and he said verse 27 your brother has come he replied and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound safe and sound you know that word in English is a good translation but the word that Jesus most certainly would have used when he told this story in Aramaic is just the word shalom He's killed the fatted calf. Your dad has killed the fatted calf because he's received your brother back in shalom. And that means safe and sound, but it also means in peace. It has this comprehensive meaning. We don't have a single English word for it. You can take it a few different directions when you translate it. That's what you have to do as a translator. They, usually our translations say safe and sound, and that's fine, but there is more to it he that elder son knows everything basically that's happened when he hears that your dad has received him back in peace there's been a reconciliation there's been a a restoration and he is safe and sound he is back notice the reason for the party is not that your brother has come he says your brother has come that's a fact he's recounting the story Accurately to the elder brother, but your father has killed the fatted calf because what's the reason he killed the fatted calf? What's the reason for the party? It's because he has him back. The father has found his son. That's the reason for the party. Not that the son has done some great thing in returning. The party is for the dad. And it is over his son, yes. He celebrates over his son. But the reason for the party is this dad has found and rescued his own son back. The party's for the dad. And the the the, the, the older son knows what's happened and he's angry. He's angry and he won't go in the house. And I want to tell you a story from the Middle East. When I was still new in Jordan, I was invited, our whole family was invited to a village just outside the capital. There's a young man who worked in the city in the capital where we lived, and I met him, and he said, I've got to have you out to our family home in the village one of these days on a Friday, which is the day off, the day of, of, of prayers at the mosque. You've got to come and have lunch with us. So one day he said, this Friday, I'm going to pick you up. We didn't have a car in those days and take you out to my home so after prayers he drives into the city picks us up we drive out going through these roads up off the highway down these these dusty hills and he comes to our village and he starts telling us about these neighbors and that house and who they are and then we arrive at his house and there an older man in his thobe, you know long robe and, uh, and all comes to the door to greet us it's his father and we get out of the car and I go up to the door and his dad greets me he he kisses my right cheek my my left and then my uh, my right left yeah there we go and uh and left again three kisses to welcome me and brings me in the house and then his this man uh, my friend uh, is it one of the sons of the house he uh, his older brother comes over who lives next door and he comes into the guest room the parlor where we're sitting and he comes up to me and kisses me and shakes my hand and sits down and we drink a cup of coffee together and then his other brother who's younger comes who still lives in the house he's in the room he comes in kisses me greets us and sits down for a minute we have a cup of coffee and then his other brother comes who works at one of the little shops on the corner that just opened up after prayers he gets away for a minute comes to the house enters kisses me greets me and stays for five minutes and then he has to go back to work every male member of that house came and welcomed us and kissed us and greeted us Because we were a guest of the family home. And to have this elder son not enter the house when his father has a guest, not just one, his brother, but the whole village, is one of the most publicly shameful things he could have done. More public even than the, the, the crime of his younger brother. Which was done in private, presumably. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Asked in private. He, in public, doesn't go into the house. Shames his father openly. And word would have spread. It did spread, didn't it? Because the father heard. Your son won't come in. He's standing outside. He won't get the father's son. He won't come in. Can you believe that? I asked a group of Middle Eastern men in Jordan once, what would you do? if you were having a feast, a a gathering with guests in your home and your oldest son refused to enter, what would you do? And they told me, oh, that's easy. I'd have some of my young men, servants or something, go out and tie him up in the back room. And after the party, I'd beat him within an inch of his life. That's an appropriate Middle Eastern father response to this kind of behavior. It's unthinkable. It blackens the face of the family which is the the idiom we use in the Middle East. It just means you've shamed yourself. And shame is devastating when reputation is everything. Everything. And then the next surprising bit of the story is when the father again does something unthinkable. The first thing unthinkable he did is he divided his property and actually gave the younger son what he asked for. The second unthinkable thing he did was he actually ran and accepted his son, which he should not have even talked to him. He should yeah, embraced him in front of the whole village. And now the third thing, he is going to enter into the shame of his elder son and leave his guests and go out of the house. In the Middle East, you never leave your guests. Maybe once in ten years in the Middle East, I've had a host with great long apologies leave for two minutes to take care of something outside the house I'm so sorry please forgive me I will be right back just stay right here my wife will, will bring you, uh, you know, another cup of tea I'll be right back I'm so sorry this emergency has happened this has happened this person is waiting outside I'll be right back I'm really apologized. please forgive me and then go and come right back maybe once that happened you never leave your guests in the Middle East and he leaves his guest and comes out of the house to reason with his elder son it's shocking and that elder son says to him doesn't say father right?" he answered his father verse 29 look all these years I've been slaving for you never disobeyed your orders you never gave me even a A young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who spent all your wealth on prostitutes, which he doesn't know that, so he insults his brother. You kill the fatted calf for him. Ooh. He speaks like a servant, doesn't he? He uses slave language. Look, all these years I have served you, and in everything you've ever told me to do, I was obedient. He talks to about himself like a servant, not like a son. A servant's the one that works and is always afraid of being let go if he doesn't perform well. A son doesn't fear that sort of thing. He speaks about himself as a servant. He doesn't have a father-son relationship with his father. He has a master-servant relationship with his father. He is lost from his father. This is really the story of the two lost sons. You know, the very first story, the sheep lost in the wilderness, lost far away. And then the coin lost in the house nearby, but still lost. And in the third story, you get both. The, The son lost in the far country, and the son lost and he's still in the house. He practically writes himself out of the family. He says, you've never even given me a goat so that I can go and celebrate with who? With my friends over here. The elder son denied the purpose of the feast even. He he said, you killed the fatted calf for my brother? No, actually. The fatted calf is for to celebrate the father's conquest, as it were. The father's... Rescue mission gone successful. He rescued his son. He found him. That's the purpose of the feast. And the father has to make a case for joy. The father has to make a case why we celebrate. Oh, what does it mean to find his son? You know, it's the same as the shepherd who went and grabbed that sheep kicking and bleeding. And drug him back home or that coin found in the dust, grabbing it, wiping it off and putting it back in your pocket safely. He found his son. The dad gets the credit. And he's celebrating over his treasure. His son, his younger son. The finder is God. And the older son is jealous. He's angry. And his unwillingness to be reconciled to his brother also means breaking. Breaking any kind of fellowship with his father isn't that true for us even now in the Christian life to have this break this unwillingness to forgive another breaks fellowship with our Heavenly Father too doesn't it father forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us as much as I forgive others Lord forgive me that much That's what we're praying every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. The elder son doesn't really know his father as a father, does he? No. If he did, he would be able to accept his brother as a brother. But he can't. And if you don't know God as your own loving heavenly dad, then you're going to have all sorts of trouble accepting other people in this world or even other people here in our church. you think less of others or cannot forgive it's probably because you don't know the terrible things that you've been forgiven for and maybe you haven't been forgiven yet by your dad he served the father all those years and didn't get what he wanted you know i've met a lot of syrian refugees and when they come to faith in christ you start to ask them about their their journey and they've learned, you know, they, they've had a whole new experience with God. And I, we asked once in the group that I disciple in, uh, in Beirut. Uh, we, I asked them once, what, how did you used to think about God before you came to faith? And how do you think about God now? And we had so many people tell us who grew up Muslim. They said that, honestly, I grew up praying. I prayed five times a day. You know, the young women of the house, I wore the hijab early in life, the hair covering. I lived honorably. I obeyed everything in the Sharia law, in the religious law. We we prayed, we fasted during Ramadan, we gave to the poor all these years, and then we lost everything when the war came. We lost our houses, our friends, cousins, uncles, grandparents all died, and we had to leave our home. We we're without a country, we we're ashamed as a people. God didn't give us anything we gave him everything all these years serving him as Muslims and he didn't give us anything except for tragedy and I hate God deep down many have said that they hated God despised him until they found grace in the Lord Jesus isn't that what happens when you Serve God, live well, you expect a blessing from God. It's this arrangement, right? You give God what He's due, and He should give you what you're due then. Isn't that fair? That's a servant-master relationship. It's a contract. That's how a lot of us live. That's how a lot of us function that way. I have really served you God. And now my health won't get better. Now, I didn't get that job I've been praying for. I don't have the spouse I've been praying for for 10 years now. Whatever it is, you get bitter. Because you've done something for God that He wanted, and now you don't get what you've been wanting from Him all along. Most of us in the room are probably elder siblings, elder sons in the story, I think. And you start to feel pity for yourself, right? Which is basically another way of saying, God, I really deserve better than this. I do and you're not giving it to me. You haven't even given me a goat to go and celebrate with my friends. That's our hearts, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we need to repent for the good things we do because we do a lot of good for the wrong reasons, don't we? We serve God for the wrong reasons. We've got to repent of our good works a lot of times. Not that the work itself was bad, but the heart attitude was totally wrong. Maybe even idolatrous. Replacing yourself or something else for God. How much of humanitarian work in our world? I work in the humanitarian sector. Uh, And how much of that is done for the sake of humanity? How much of that is done to build a new Babel Tower, essentially? Now, I'm glad people are doing good. I'm grateful for the benefits of that but the heart motivation behind so much of it let's save the environment why so that we can exalt the world and humanity's role in it not God not as stewards of creation not as his image bearers it's idolatrous now I'm glad for environmentalists who want to protect our world but it's done for all the wrong reasons often we have the best reason we've been freed to live in the world with God how do we live then if you want to follow the Lord Jesus how should you live? How do you do good for the right reason? I want to end with a story to give that to you. A story that I use a lot in my ministry among Middle Easterners. There was a gold thief, a very famous gold thief who became notorious across villages in a given area in the Middle East. He was so famous because he could open, he could pick any lock without making a sound and go in and If you've been to the Middle East, you know that there's always a section of the city, a street, full of gold shops. And you buy gold for all sorts of reasons, but especially for dowries, for giving in marriage. And so buying gold jewelry is an important thing in that culture. So you have gold shops. And this man was robbing them blind, just became infamous. And so all the the, the shop owners got scared and started doing what? They started sleeping in their stores at night because they were so afraid they would be next. And, and, you know, in the Middle East, you have the houses in a lot of cities even here, uh, people living above their shops and then the shop down below. So the shopkeepers started sleeping in their stores. And one night, this thief came in to one particular shop, picked the lock, entered the door without a sound, walked in. But there was a table right in the middle in the dark (coughs) with some glass thing on it. He bumped into it. Glass fell over, shattered as loud as you can imagine. And the man in the back, the owner, woke up. And he started yelling, Thief! Thief! And so as all of his neighbors are hearing the commotion and hearing him yell because you're, you're, you're living close and on top of each other practically in, in Middle Eastern cities, they start descending down to see what's going on. And the first three guys get to the door of the shop and they reach in and flip the light switch on just to see this thief with a knife stabbing the old man in the chest, killing him right in the shop they rush in seize the thief now murderer drag him out into the street and they're about to kill him right there a mob has already gathered but somebody speaks up and says no we shouldn't do this we're a country of law and order we are a people of respect we need to call the police and do this above board we want people to know that in this town we won't tolerate thievery or murder and so let's do it the right way make it public to everybody and so they call the police Police come, they do their investigation, they seize the the murderer, they get the knife and put it in a bag, you know, and seal it. They interview the first three guys who actually saw the crime and get their case ready. And then a few weeks later, the, the date comes in court and the man is before a judge. And the judge asks him, how do you plead? And he says, guilty. And so the judge is about to... Put the gavel down and declare him guilty and pronounce a sentence. And the accused says, No, Your Honor, please just wait a moment, if you would. Sir, I just want to ask for two things before I'm executed. Would Could you give me a, a cigarette to smoke and would you give me a place to pray before I'm executed? And, and the judge says, yes, we'll give you two cigarettes to smoke and a place to pray. But here I pronounce you guilty of murder. Slap the gavel down and you will be sentenced to death and execution in front of the the very shop, in the middle of the street, in front of the very shop where you murdered that man. You'll be executed there at dawn tomorrow. And the accused and now convicted man hangs his head and is led to the back of the courthouse into a, a sealed room, let in that room... And the door is locked. He's given cigarettes. He, he begins to smoke the first cigarette. And as he's there, somebody was hiding in the room, apparently, because he suddenly, across this partition wall in the room, somebody knocks him in the head with a board. And he just falls right out on the floor. And as he's knocked out, a man emerges from around that partition, comes out, puts on the accused, now convicted man's clothing swaps clothing, gets dressed, leaves his clothes on the floor, finishes his cigarette, and then knocks on the door, and the guards lead him out, and the door shuts. The next morning, this accused criminal wakes up in a stupor with a massive headache, and he has no idea what's going on. He just wonders who on earth couldn't wait for him to be executed the next morning, that they had to knock him upside the head. He looks and the first thing he realizes he's not wearing many clothes, so he puts on the clothes he finds on the floor, gets dressed, checks in the, the pocket here and finds an, an ID card. And it's his picture, but the name isn't his. The name is his twin brother's name. So he has a twin. And they resembled each other so much that their mom couldn't even tell them apart sometimes when they were young. He still has no clue what's really happened. He puts the card back, goes up to the door, creaks it open, sees the courthouse is empty. You know, it's the next morning. He doesn't know what's happened. So he goes in the courthouse, sneaks around, doesn't go out the front door, of course, goes out a back door into an alleyway and catches the first service taxi he finds. It's like a little mini bus and, and rides out of town. When he gets far enough away, pops out, goes into a coffee shop, just kind of tucks into the corner and drinks his coffee and sits there and he hears and sees on the news playing there. Infamous thief, murderer, executed this morning. And that's when he realized what happened. He realized what his brother did for him. He has a new identity, a new name, a new life. If he buys a house, what whose name is that house going to be in? His brother's name. If he has a child, a son, daughter, whose name will they bear? Well, in the Middle East, you know, we give our children, uh, we give children uh, the father's name as their middle name, and then their grandfather's name as the next name, and then the family name. So they'll bear whose name? The, his brother's name. If he has kids, if he marries, enters into a contract, whose name will be on the signature line? It will be his brother's name. So how could he possibly live to thank his brother for that kind of sacrifice and costly love, that kind of gift? How can he live? There's only one real way he can live to honor the name of his brother. He's been set free. Will the police keep looking for him? No. He's free to live to the honor of his brother's name. That is the best he can do out of thanks. He's he's received everything a brother could give to a brother. How does he live now? He lives to honor the name of his brother, to thank him with a grateful heart. We sang earlier the words up here, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. How will you live? You've received everything. The Father's run and caught you and hugged you, kissed you, drug you in, and thrown a party over you. He's entered into your shame and left all of his guests behind to come reason with you and tell you, look, everything is yours. You're always with me. Come celebrate with us. And now, will you let yourself be moved by the costly love of your father that's believing the gospel will you let yourself be moved and drop any self improvement plan drop any righteousness any good view you have of yourself already and just receive identity as a gift from the Father forgiveness a new status a new chance a new life a new freedom you are free now to obey God to serve Him as a son, you've been forgiven, you've been graced, all of that. You know, if you're not really passionate for honoring the name of Jesus and making Him famous in the world, then you might not really have been in the place of that gold thief, murderer, or in the place of, these, of that younger son, where they just are overwhelmed by the Father's costly love for them. Maybe you haven't experienced that really. And you could have been a a Christian, so to speak, for a long time and not really known the Father's costly love for you. Maybe you didn't know that you had been grabbed out of the dust and, and swept off and kept as a treasure and celebrated over. What does it take? What does it take? It takes looking and seeing a Father who stopped at nothing to restore you. To have a loving relationship with you be moved by his costly love for you believe jesus suffered and died for your sin and shame and receive that forgiveness receive a new name in your life and then just live out of that you will have already received everything now you just freely live out of it let us pray together heavenly father give us a sight of your running to us with mercy in your eyes hugging us and kissing us in our shame and filth and our guilt and sin give us eyes to see how much it has cost you to enter into our our shame Lord we need you to change us to forgive us and then we can actually obey then we can live but not as servants not as fearful people but as sons and daughters who will never fear being cast out, but simply freely love you and, and obey you that way. In the name of Jesus, power us to do it. In amen. Amen.